Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has been getting some big national recognition for her work in defense of voting rights and democracy. I'll talk with her about that and about the upcoming midterm elections and about the news this week from the Supreme Court. And we're going to hear about a new podcast that explores the life of former Detroit Red Wings defenseman Vladimir Konstantinov, the terrible crash that ended his career, and why he might soon lose his at-home care due to Michigan's auto insurance no-fault law. That's all next on Detroit Today, right after the news. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Thanks so much for joining us today. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson. Just a note at the top of the show today, tomorrow we will be talking all hour about the leaked draft U.S. Supreme Court opinion that would strike down Roe v. Wade if it becomes the court's final and official ruling. Stephen is going to talk with University of Michigan law professor and former U.S. attorney Barbara McQuaid, and we're going to take lots of your calls and comments during the show tomorrow. We really hope that you'll join us for that conversation because we know so many people in our community are thinking and talking about and processing their feelings as they relate to the big news this week. Uh, And again, that is tomorrow, same time, same place. We're going to want to hear from you then. But first, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson has been on the front lines of the fight to uphold democracy and voting rights in the face of growing right-wing extremism that threatens those institutions here in the United States. That work recently won her a John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award. She's one of just a few recipients of that award that, that year, this year, I should say. And get this, the others include Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky and Congresswoman Liz Cheney. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson joins me now to talk about the award and the state of American democracy as we head toward the 2022 midterm. Secretary Benson, always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Good morning, Jake. Thanks for having me. First of all, congratulations on that award. Um, Before we get to that, and also the elections that happened yesterday, which Mm -hmm. if a lot of people may have blinked and missed that, but uh, there's some big news there. But uh, I did want to talk about the big news from the Supreme Court, this draft opinion that was leaked uh, on Roe v. Wade that would overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh, I know abortion rights don't really fall under the purview of your official position, but as a leader here in Michigan, a legal expert, someone who has spoken out in favor of reproductive rights in the past. Uh, how are you personally reacting to that news? Well, as a, as a former law dean as well, I look at the draft opinion with a lot of concern because the basis is on overturning the constitutional right to privacy, uh, which is the same basis used in other cases to enable marriage equality uh, and several other freedoms uh, that, that our country has now adopted to. It's also the same reasoning that, that in other cases has found voting to be a fundamental right uh, under the Constitution. And so I think there's certainly the direct impact of what this draft or ultimate final opinion may 
may bring for the country and for women and for people everywhere. But there's a warning signal as well hidden in the words that um, other long-held rights or protections or freedoms up to and including the fundamental right to vote may also be in jeopardy based on the court's reasoning in this draft opinion. So, so that has me very concerned uh, and I think you know, really also underscores the fact that you know, elections matter. Uh, and that in every election provides an opportunity for citizens, regardless of your position, perspective, or where you live, to make sure your voices are heard. Uh, and I think we'll certainly be seeing this have an impact on um, on elections this year. And, and I think we're already seeing that based on the, a lot of the engagement and high turnout we saw yesterday. That's exactly where I wanted to go next on this. Uh, as you mentioned, a lot of people are interpreting Justice Alito's opinion in ways that would seem to erode other things that we do see as fundamental rights here in America, including that right to vote. Um, it sounds like you do believe that there is a danger there. I'm curious what you think of how, um, you know, what what is the next step? How do you, uh, you know, you, you've been talking a lot about ways to uphold these institutions, to defend them. Uh, what, uh, you know, how, what is the course of action if this does become the final ruling from the Supreme Court? Well, I think like everything, like the same trend we've seen in voting rights uh, for the past several years uh, with opinions coming out of the Supreme Court that have weakened federal protections for the right to vote, the battle or the opportunity, depending on how you look at it, now shifts to the states and now shifts to voters here in Michigan and in states around the country uh, and our state constitution and protections there. And so I, I think you'll see a lot of conversations, a lot of movement around enshrining protections in our state constitution, which voters can do by referendum or by petition in our state. Uh, as well as in other states. I, I, th I think to me, the bottom line, and I always look for inspiration and opportunity in every setback and challenge, is for us to remember that in a democracy, people have the power and people have the ultimate authority to determine who governs us uh, and who determine the, the, and, and hold accountable uh, uh, those, those who, who make decisions that affect us all. And, and so, you know, elections this year, elections in the future provide that opportunity and provide the opportunity for citizens to express their positions on these and other controversial issues and support leaders and referendums and petitions that reflect those values and, those, and, and protect those freedoms. So barring any Supreme Court opinion that could have, again, these sort of sweeping implications for voting rights, what do you see as some of the other big threats uh, to democracy and voting rights in 2022, um, where we sit right now and sort of as we're seeing elections uh, start to get underway here? Well, there's no question that democracy is on the ballot this year. Uh, as the, you know, really the, the Kennedy Library made clear in, in, in the award you mentioned earlier and really highlighting those of us who've been working to ensure that, that no matter where someone lives or who they vote for, they have a voice and it's heard and a vote that's counted. So to me, protecting our, our freedom to vote, our right to elect who governs us is, is a critical issue uh, this year. And voters will have an opportunity to choose uh, across the country and here in Michigan uh, who will be overseeing our elections uh, in the future. And, and we know, I think to me, the biggest challenges or the biggest issues apart from that um, are engagement, making sure voters, I mean, a lot of folks are exhausted, frankly, you know, for a lot of reasons, a lot of the uncertainty, a lot of the challenges we've dealt with as a state, as a country over the last five or six years. Uh, and a lot of that is related to um, not just the divisiveness and the toxic nature of politics right now, but also the misinformation uh, and that is, a, in my view, an extension of this national coordinated, well-funded attack on our democracy being carried out. But people who are lying about the accuracy and integrity of our elections or have 
um, stated publicly they wouldn't follow the rule of law to certify election results they don't agree with um, has also, I think, created a great challenge for us in the democracy world, but also, you know, um, has has created a lot of um, weariness among citizens uh, who are tired of the noise uh, and just want to know that our state and our elections are going to be run well and with integrity and want to know how to find truth in the midst of all of this noise. So as the, the chief election officer of the state, we've I've taken a lot of steps to make sure people have access to trusted information, including revamping our website to uh, uh, find information about audits and other data points that We've conducted the verify that improve the accuracy and, and integrity of our elections. But that battle is an ongoing one. And it's one that we need voters to be engaged with and serve as truth tellers as well, spreading truthful information so that we can ensure everyone is an informed and engaged citizen this year and beyond. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. Really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, I'm talking with Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. We're talking about what her work is looking like in 2022 as we approach the midterms in terms of making sure that we our institutions for voting and democracy are intact and strong as we head into this critical election. We're talking about the critical elections that happened yesterday here in Michigan and and we also are talking a little bit about the uh, news from the Supreme Court this week as well. We want to hear from you. What questions do you have for Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson? What do you think are the biggest threats to democracy in 2022? And what do you think should be done to uphold those institutions? As usual, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. You can also send us your comments and questions on Twitter using the hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work you into the conversation that way as well. And Secretary Benson, um, you and other elections officials across the state, Republicans, Republicans, Democrats alike, have been urging lawmakers to pass election reforms for months now. Um, you know, we saw local clerks send a letter to lawmakers and other state leaders urging them, saying, we need help. We need this now. We can't wait on this to, to do things like pre-process ballots, uh, do more for early voting, as you mentioned, do more audits of, of elections mm-hmm. as, and so forth. Um do you have any hope at this point now that we've already gone past the May election uh, here in Michigan um, that we'll see changes to Michigan law to help clerks and other elections workers do their jobs in August and November? I um, you know, I think the best predictor of the future is the past. And we've been asking for these changes, as you mentioned, really since I took office, uh, for example, uh, testifying in May of 2019 that we before the state legislature that that we need the ability to begin processing and validating absentee ballots as they come in or at least prior to Election Day, uh, like in Ohio and Florida and many other states. And we still haven't seen movement there. Uh, but that doesn't mean we stop pushing. And I think the clerk stepping in and really being engaged in a way that um, that can move the needle is is a significant change. And in my view, we've got you know long term, short term needs for the elections. For for this fall, we really need three things: an increase and sustained source of funding uh, as clerks continue to need resources to support their work. Uh, we need to protect our election officials and increase protections uh, and ramifications for those who threaten our election officials, because so many clerks uh, and those standing on the front lines of of protecting democracy face continuous threats to their safety and to their work. Uh, And three, we need to be able to 
uh, have policies in place that enable us to process and tabulate and report results of elections as soon as possible after the polls close. And that's why we consistently ask for the ability, as we have in other states uh, seen, to pre-process absentee ballots because more voters are sending their ballots in early and right now clerks can't begin tabulating or processing those ballots until 7 a.m. on election day, which puts us at a, at a disadvantage in getting those unofficial results out uh, at a um, you know efficient speed after the polls close. And in terms of uh, what you're hearing from lawmakers, anyone like that, um, has has there been any change recently in their reaction or, or attitudes toward this? And uh, if if the, these don't go into place, what are the ramifications? There has not, I've not seen a change. There's always an openness and a willingness for discussions, which I appreciate. At this point, we need some action. There have been bills introduced that we'd love to see some movement on. And uh, and again, we've seen this legislature move quite quickly when it wants to do something. And so I hope that uh, the sense of urgency that comes with elections uh, coming up, in which they're all many of them are on the ballot, will um, will impact that because we all deserve to, to have smooth and, and put our best foot forward to have smooth elections this year. That said, you know, we managed, myself and our 1,600 clerks, the highest turnout election in our state's history with enormous national scrutiny without these changes in place in 2020. It wasn't easy, but we did it, uh, and we did it, you know, with integrity and, and proudly uh, with accurate results that stood over hundreds of audits. So we've done it before, we'll do it again, but there's no reason why we, we can't also see partnership and support from our state legislature to essentially continue to make improvements for our elections so that we can you know, essentially do better for, for all of our citizens. Again, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. I'm talking with Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, and we'd like to get you involved in the conversation today as well. Again, that's 313-577-1019. Right now, we'd like to go to Michael in Gross Point. Michael, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and good morning to the uh, former dean of my law school. (laughs) Uh, Michael, what would you like to say today? Uh, My question is as follows. Uh, I live in the city of Gross Point. Uh, my driver's license, which is my picture identification for voting, uh, identifies my residence as Gross Point Park, which is the official address for my zip code. Uh, I'm concerned that a very aggressive election poll watcher might challenge my right to vote if they see my driver's license and say, you're not eligible to vote in the city of Gross Point. You have to live in Gross Point Park. And uh, I'm wondering if the Secretary of State is aware of this concern and if she has any thoughts of remedying it. It doesn't necessarily have to be a change in everybody's driver's license, but it might be as simple as issuing every... uh, election officer uh, a letter, an official letter saying uh, the driver's license is not necessarily the identification of a polling place. Mm. Michael, I really appreciate this question. It's a good one. Uh, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, uh, what are your, what's your reaction to what Michael is asking here? Yes, thank you, Michael, and I'm glad to hear you're an alum of Wayne State Law School. Uh, the, uh, the specific question, I think, first, what you point to is what we've seen as a growing challenge in election administration, where we want to have transparency and invite observers and challengers, as is allowed and permitted under our law, to observe the processes. And what has happened is a lot of times those individuals interfere, um, sometimes in contrary to what they're even permitted to do under the law, with our elections processes in a way that causes this type of 
confusion and concern for voters. And so I think first and foremost, and we have been working with the legislature to, to find ways to do this effectively, uh, we need to better train uh, or provide training or information ahead of time for challengers and observers that when they see things, they understand what the law is and what they're seeing. Uh, and that you know could help curb, I think, a lot of the misinformation that emerges out of elections processes and leads to confusion among voters and challenges for our clerks. Uh, and so this specific example is 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 a point, you know, case in point on that. And, and you know, we're certainly going to work to make sure our clerks, our, 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 our observers, everyone knows the rules and the laws this year and, and beyond. Uh, and we also, there's, there's a state hotline if you have specific problems, but we'll uh, on election day, as you encounter, uh, you also have the option uh, to to vote absentee uh, and uh, and get your ballot mailed to you and then return it back, uh, which also could perhaps avoid some of the concerns that you have in terms of showing up in person on election day. But the bottom line is, uh, you have a right to vote in your you know in the address where you're registered to vote, uh, and that is. Uh, verifiable on our website, michigan.gov slash elections. Uh, and you should, you know, come armed with that information uh, and prepared uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to not be discouraged from voting if someone with misinformation tries to step in the way or interfere with the process. Yeah, Michael, thanks again for the call. I really appreciate uh, you bringing that in. And hopefully other people are helped out by some of that uh, answer as well. Um, uh, so, uh, Secretary Benson, as I mentioned earlier, there were elections yesterday here in, in Michigan. The May elections don't often get quite as much attention as uh, the primaries in August or the general election in November. But talk about how voting went yesterday. And uh, are there any? did you see anything that might tell us about sort of the more high-profile elections later in the year and how they might go? Well, we, we did see a lot of people vote prior to election day. So we're continuing to see, you know, even in the waning days of the pandemic, uh, citizens continue to take advantage of their right under our state constitution to vote from home. Uh, and uh, and so a, a significant number of citizens who participated yesterday voted prior to election day. And a lot of the data um, is that, you know, in terms of, of who and where is, is still, um, you know, we're still gathering because it was a local election and a lot of that is reported at the county level. Um, but I think the bottom line is we also see hundreds of citizens continue to register and vote on election day itself, even in a local election, which also underscores the importance of, of, of our work to make it easier than ever before to register to vote in our state. Uh, and um, I, I think, you know, we've seen, and I'm sure others have reported some, you know, changes in, in election districts and special elections and house districts uh, that I think, you know, could indicate some trends for, for November, but it's really too early to know uh, on that. I think that the most encouraging thing is we're seeing a lot of people participate. Citizens continue to, 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 to exercise their right to vote from home. Uh, and uh, citizens continue to, if they're eligible, register on election day and, and ensure that they're able to participate. So all good trends. Um, and uh, I'm optimistic that we'll have, you know, continue to have smooth high turnout elections this year as we did in 2020 uh, and in this local election. Uh, but, you know, again, every election is an opportunity for voters to show us what they're thinking and what they want. And our job is to make sure that wherever they are, Wherever they live, their voice is heard and their vote counts. And speaking of the August primary coming up in a few months, uh, I'm curious what you make of the Republican candidates who are facing challenges to their signatures that they've submitted to appear on the primary ballot in, in August. Democrats and even some fellow Republicans who are opponents of these folks are accusing them of submitting forged signatures. Uh, those those candidates include former Detroit Police Chief James Craig, businessman Perry Johnson, conservative commenter 
Tudor Dixon. These are some of the front runners or apparent front runners in the race. Uh, I'm curious what happens if those signatures are proven to be fraudulent. Well, a couple of things. I mean, first, you know, we're, we're just at the beginning of the process. The Bureau of Elections has received uh, the challenges and are reviewing uh, them. And, and you know, there, there have been several. Uh, these are, you know, the individuals who work at the Bureau of Elections have been there for years. They are professionals and they're going to continue this work with integrity as professionals. But I think the second thing is, you know, if the, some of the allegations of fraud uh, turn out to be accurate, uh, there certainly will need to be ramifications for that. Uh, and because I, I have no tolerance for those who would misuse or abuse the, the, the elections process at all, and, and this, this in particular. Uh, so we could expect referrals to law enforcement and the attorney general if indeed there are, um, you know, potential potential um, things that that, that evidence in, suggests we should refer. And um, um, you know, beyond that, we'll allow the the facts to to drive us forward and the investigation to play out. Or the 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 you know the response to the challenges to play out, and so so I mean it, again this is this is hypothetical like you said at this point we're at the beginning of the process so we shouldn't mm-hmm. assume that any of these uh, that 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 these are you know challenges are expected in these cases so uh, no conclusions mm-hmm. to be made yet but uh, again uh, uh, fraudulent signatures especially if you if you see lots of them is there are there criminal implications there. Potentially. I mean, again, it depends on the nature of the violation. And but but I think the, the bottom line is we're going to take any any evidence, uh, any credible evidence of illegal wrongdoing happening in the petition process, including fraud and forgery very seriously. And we'll refer it to the appropriate law enforcement officials to ensure there's accountability uh, and uh, and you know also continue to work with legislators in the hopes of strengthening the protections for the petition process to ensure that we can uh, um, have this pro- p- p- this aspect of our elections the the petitioning of candidates to get on the ballot go not just smoothly but you know with an eye towards protecting the integrity of the process so if we need additional protections additional uh, um, ramifications uh, through changes in the law we'll explore that too but you know at this point we're just going to see. Uh, you know, the, the process will play itself out, um, but we do um, take very seriously any um, any um, violations of election law, and we will refer them to law enforcement if they're found. Let's go to Cheryl in Ann Arbor. Cheryl, what would you like to say today? Uh, <laughs> I didn't quite hear that. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I actually had two questions, and hopefully uh, Secretary Benson can address both of them. The first is just a clarification on how we are supposed to sign any of the petitions that are being circulated. Is it with our voting address, our mailing address? What's the right way? And the second question is pertaining to the budget, which is now being negotiated up in Lansing. We know that one of the things that doesn't get a lot of money is election funding and election funding locally in our counties. How do we get money transferred into that? What's happening up in Lansing right now to get money for training, to get money for increased pay? Really appreciate the answer yeah. to their questions or questions. Thank Cheryl, you. Cheryl, thank, thank you for you. that. Yeah, and uh, and Secretary Benson is someone who's watched the budget process up close yeah. as a reporter. Cheryl's not lying <laughs> on the last yep. point there about uh, not not always getting a lot of money for the elections processes. Uh, what are what are the answers to her questions first about the correct way to sign uh, that that petitions and which address to use? 
your voter registration address is your address with the state. It's your address on your 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 state or your license if you have one. Uh, and if you have any you know questions about that, you can contact your local clerk. But that is the address you should use. Uh, secondly, the uh, I, as I was you know, discussing earlier, ensuring we have a sustained source of funding for our elections is a, a top priority for me. We've consistently, continuously asked both leaders in the federal government and in our state government to take seriously the need to protect. You know, if they say they're going to um, protect the security of our elections, uh, and if they say they want to you know, stand for election integrity, then fund our uh, work to ensure that we have uh, all the resources that we need to protect our elections. And, and you know, I would say, seeing you know the federal government act, uh, the, the president has asked for ten billion dollars over the next several years for election funding is very encouraging. Um, but you know, I would, from our state legislature standpoint, we haven't seen a lot of movement. And I would genuinely like to understand why those claiming to want secure elections consistently reject requests for funding and other resources that would increase election security, uh, while also attacking the partnerships and collaborations that help us maintain the integrity of our elections. Uh, and I you know, hope springs eternal that we'll see movement. We're going to continue pushing for it, as as I know the clerks will as well. Uh, and you know, supporting our clerks however we can as the increase to running elections and the cost of running elections does continue to increase um, with every cycle. Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Jake. I appreciate it and uh, appreciate all the work you guys do. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right. Coming up, we'll talk about a new podcast that looks at the life of former Red Wing defenseman Vladimir Konstantinov, the catastrophic limo crash that ended his career and why he might lose his at-home care due to Michigan's auto insurance law. I'll talk with the hosts of Collision Course, the Konstantinov story next on Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Jake Neer in for Stephen Henderson today. Thank you so much for joining us. You know those childhood memories that just stick? Those moments that define that particular age for you the rest of your life? Well, the Red Wings winning the Stanley Cup in 1997 was one of those moments for me. That was the year I fell in love with hockey. And, of course, this idea of Detroit as hockey town. That image of Steve Eiserman hoisting the Stanley Cup over his head with that giant gap in his teeth. It's something that I'm always going to hold on to. I think that a lot of Detroiters and Metro Detroiters feel the same way. But then, less than a week later, I have another much more terrifying and sad childhood-defining memory. It was a horrible limo crash. Inside that limo were two Red Wing stars, members of the famed Russian Five. Vladimir Konstantinov, Slava Fetisov, and their team masseuse Sergei Natsakov all sustained injuries. Konstantinov was sustained with catastrophic injuries that would change his life forever. 
It was a smack back down to reality here in Detroit. A new podcast from Michigan Radio looks at the career and life of Vladimir Konstantinov before and after the crash and what his life might look like from here on out. Here's an excerpt from the first installment of the podcast, Collision Course, The Konstantinov Story. Looking back at all these videos, you can just imagine what this was like to have this dream team come together after years years of losing and people literally from all across the world coming together to make this happen and then in an instant poof it just vanishes like that his old life was gone but you know i got i got to see him in his new life and i was really impressed with how much living he is able to do with the help of his 24 7 caregivers do you want minestrone He has these warm, you know, really loving relationships with the people who care for him. He gets to go out to his favorite restaurants. He gets incredible therapies to maximize his physical recovery, his mental recovery. And he lives in the comfort of his own home, not an institution. As Collision Course hosts April Bayer and Tracy Samilton explain, that could all change very soon, barring changes to the state's new auto insurance law. They join me now to talk about it and the podcast that they host. Welcome to both of you. It's really wonderful to have you on Detroit Today. Jake, hey, it's April here. Yeah, good to hear from you. Tracy's here, too. Hi, Jake. (laughs) Yeah, again, uh, I've, I've been really enjoying this podcast. Tracy, I want to start with you. This is an issue that you've been doing an incredible job reporting on for a while now. Uh, Explain why people like Vladimir Konstantinov might lose so much with these changes to the state's auto insurance law that have been going into effect for the past three years. Well, the new auto no-fault law um, that was passed in 2019, it included a cut to the payments uh, of caregivers for people like Vladdy. Um, 45% cut, nearly half. So um, you're looking at an industry of home care agencies and specialty residential centers where, you know, maybe their profit margin may have been about 10%. And all of a sudden, they're dealing with uh, revenue coming in that's dropped by half. And they're they're just going out of business. So mm-hmm. people like Vlad are, um, Vlad himself is in jeopardy of losing all his home care uh, in less than a month. There's there's so much, you know, going on with this, Jake. I mean, I, I have to say, like, I've worked on a lot of long form before, and I've never been so happy to have 20 minutes to tell a story. Yeah, yeah I know that. I know that. I, I was, when you asked Tracy that question, I was like, okay, so we should just recap the whole first two <laughs> Because, like, she, she, what she said, like, that, that, is all, that is all true. There's a lot to say about, you know, like, how these how – these, uh, these home care uh, companies and clinics and all these places, how they came to be in Michigan, why it is that Michigan is, uh, you know, is recognized as this place where you get the best, the best care for traumatic brain injuries and things like that. It's, it's all because of this really unique law and the history of how we got here. And maybe even more importantly, the 40 year story of how the reforms of 2019, you know, got, got, to where we are today like it's 
it can, <laughs> there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And and you know, uh, we will come back to auto insurance policy and get into the nitty gritty there in a little bit. Uh, but uh, April, as you explain, uh, you know, this is an opportunity to tell a story. You know, this is this is not just an issue that we're digging into. It's it's someone's story. So I'm curious why you settled on telling this story and as a way to highlight these issues and and why uh, in the form of a podcast in this case. Well, I mean, uh, Tracy, I think Tracy was the first person I heard say this. Of course, it's about Vladdy. But there are several thousand Vladimir Konstantinovs out there who were affected by this. Um, When we became aware of his situation, it just like everybody just kind of looked at each other as we were sort of kicking around. Should we do something, you know, some kind of coverage on this? And it was like, this is a no brainer. This this is one of the most famous athletes in Michigan history. And if he's in a position where he, you know, is is not sure how much longer he's going to be able to stay yeah. in his home. Imagine all the thousands of people in his situation yeah. mm-hmm. that, that are facing the same thing. So he, he makes this um, really good sort of um, person to focus on to show people you, you actually do know of somebody who's being directly um, affected by the changes in the law. And Tracy, like all of Tracy's reporting has been with, you know, just plain, you know, folks who, you know, and if, if you do know somebody who is dependent on, uh, you know, on the, the catastrophic claim fund, then you, you know all this, right? Mm-hmm. And you've been, I know people have been seeing it in their social media feeds as the consequences of this are sort of coming to pass. But there are some folks who, who do feel like, you know, I just... I can't. I don't, what is there's there's a lot of stuff here. I don't really know anyone, and that was. I think that was kind of what got us talking about. Well, what if we just talked about Vladdy? I mean, this is right. somebody everybody cares about. Yeah, and, and you know, we couldn't have done it. We could not have done it if his family and his uh, caregivers had not um, opened up their home to us to to see the kind of care he's getting, to see who he is, and they have. You know, they've been so generous because they know that Vlad represents a lot of people without a voice. Yeah. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer, in for Stephen Henderson today. I'm talking with the hosts of the new podcast, Collision Course, The Konstantinov Story. I'm talking with April Bayer, who's host of Stateside on Michigan Radio, and Tracy Samilton, energy and transportation reporter for Michigan Radio. Uh, and we're again, we're talking about the story of Vladimir Konstantinov, uh, the crash that ended his career, and what happens now, uh, and if he's going to lose his sort of sustaining medical benefits that allow him to stay in his own in his own home instead of having to go to a facility to be cared for. Uh, the number is on the phones is 313-577-1019. Again, that's 313-577-1019. And we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. What do you think of Michigan's new auto insurance law meant to drive down premiums? Have you noticed a difference on your own bill? What do you plan to do with that $400 insurance refund that's coming your way if it hasn't already? And what do you make of the fact that thousands of catastrophically injured people like Vladimir Konstantinov can lose their coverage in the coming weeks because of that same law? We especially want to hear from you if you've personally experienced a catastrophic injury, either as someone who's experienced it firsthand or as someone who works in the at-home care industry. Again, the number on the lines is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also leave your comments and questions on Twitter. Just use the hashtag Detroit Today. 
Now, April and Tracy, I, I know there are a lot of people listening like me who are uh, who watched that season uh, and are, are fans of the Red Wings and the Russian Five. Uh, but for people who don't, who haven't really um, lived through that, who aren't uh, as familiar, talk about what Vladimir Konstantinov meant uh, for the city of Detroit, along with that team, and sort of why he became so iconic before the, the crash. Okay. Uh, uh, first of all, I have to tell you, uh, there's a really, really excellent documentary that's going to tell this story in greater detail than I ever could <laughs> in a couple of minutes here. It is called The Russian Five uh, and made made in Michigan. But When when I was watching that as a new Michigander with my husband who's lived here his whole life, first of all, he was just like, oh, my God, this is the first time I've watched a documentary about something I remember. (laughs) (laughs) That's always a terrible moment, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, Vlad and the rest of the guys were so critical because it was they were the onset of a completely different era in NHL hockey. As you know, you know, because of the Cold War, there just there was not there was not NHL participation by some of the top people in the sport. There were all these amazing, amazing players in Russia who were on Russian teams, Russian national teams, you know, Russian uh you know uh, uh privately owned teams and they were they were playing this this level of game that nobody else had the skill level was insane out of control like you watch the footage of how those guys passed and how they worked together and it's just it it was breathtaking so the red wings were kind of the first team to say all right we're not just going to make a draft pick for russian players we are going to figure out what we have to do to get them to come over here. It's so dramatic, like what Vlad and his wife and small child at the time, what they did showing up in Michigan through this ridiculous cloak and dagger operation that the Red Wings put together to get him and they, and, and yeah. Sergei Federov, the, the first two players The here. Red Wings actually bribed, had to bribe <laughs> right, Russian right. officials to say that uh, Vlad had cancer and couldn't be a hockey player yes. anymore. It yeah. was a complete fabrication. They went over there and started throwing money around, got these documents, and um, got him over here. Yeah. yeah, when I heard that, my my eyebrows just raised. I mean, again, I'm a fan of this. I, I've heard these stories before. I had no idea that they said he had terminal cancer to get him over here. That was that was a shocker for me. <laughs> oh, it sure looks like cancer. Um, I have to say, Jake, I have to say too. Like my my uh, like distant impressions of Vlad Konstantinov were, you know, he had this reputation, all these nicknames, the Vladinator, and you know, mm-hmm. he was just he he thought that stuff was hilarious, and he milked it, but. He, you know, the Russian players, the thing is, they weren't known as brawlers. These were incredibly skilled, you know, highly technical players. He did, you know, he did become a guy who was capable of throwing elbows, but... Well, it was... It was like walking into a wall with right. him. Yeah. He didn't even really need to. <laughs> yeah. He was he's so strong even now. Yeah. You know, he didn't really need to do much other than just be in someone else's way. Yeah. yeah. And again, I'm sorry. I know I'm I know I'm just working it, but that that Russian <laughs> 5 documentary is such a beautiful piece of Michigan history. It's yeah. it's magic. And it, it kind of helped us figure out what we needed to say. Well, coming up, we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to take a look at, again, what Vladimir Konstantinov, his life looks like now and what it could look like soon. We're going to take more of your calls and social media comments. The number is 313-577-1019. You can also use the hashtag Detroit Today on Twitter.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Jake Neer sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. Thank you so much for joining us. We are talking about the new podcast, Collision Course, the Konstantinov story from Michigan Radio. I'm talking with the hosts of that podcast. April Bayer is host of Stateside on Michigan Radio. And Tracy Samilton is the energy and transportation reporter for that station as well. And this is a podcast about Vladimir Konstantinov, a member of the famed Russian Five, uh, won a Stanley Cup in 1997 with the Red Wings, first time since the 50s that they were able to achieve that. Of course, had a catastrophic limousine accident that ended his career and changed his life forever. Uh, And uh, his life now, we're about to talk about what that looks like, but it could change dramatically if there aren't some changes to Michigan's new auto insurance law. And we want to hear from you. What do you think of that auto insurance law and its effects? Do you think that it has achieved any any of its intended effects, I should say? Uh, And do you, are you concerned about what this means for these folks who were catastrophically injured in car accidents? The number on the lines is 313 1019 Again, that's 313-577-1019. And uh, Tracy, you actually had a chance to go visit uh, Vladimir Konstantinov at his home. Talk about what you discovered when you went to go visit. Well, Vladdy gets really good care. But more importantly, I think he, he gets cared for by people who, who love him. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of his uh caregivers who's actually from Ukraine and she speaks Russian. Uh, she's been with him for 17 years. Wow. And I, I got a chance to see why they love him. He's 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 a funny guy. And he's um, actually, he, they told me that he's actually very caring. He, he doesn't, it's not a, a one-way street with him. He does have a traumatic brain injury, but he asked them about their kids and their lives, and if they're having a bad day, he tries to cheer them up. And um, it, it's very clear that the folks who work for him to get him out of bed, to, you know, get him his meals, to take him to Alp- Applebee's, uh, you know, on occasion, to take him to Red Wings games. It's very clear these people truly love him, and it's more than a job for them. One of the things that I got out of Tracy's, the you know, the, the reporting that she brought back when we were working on this is... Like, okay, if you if you have someone in your life with a traumatic brain injury, I'm not I'm not going to say anything you don't know right now. But there are some specific things about brain injury that are not the same as care for people who just happen to be physically have a physical disability. Right. I mean, yes, there's all the, you know, the choking hazards and, you know, pneumonia risks and, you know, things that might come up. But Vladdy's a little more ambulatory. You know, he can he can get around. But there are, you know, it's like there's emotional mood swings Mm -hmm. and there are things that times when he gets frustrated that I mean, I don't I'm not a I'm not an MD, but like might have a little bit more to do with what people understand as dementia care, Mm -hmm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just it's such a specific discipline. You know, helping people who have may have some physical challenges from from collisions, but also, you know, have these brain injuries. The level of recovery was a surprise to me, but also just like that, that there are there are interventions and therapies and things that have been done and sort of have been pioneered here in Michigan because of this. And, and how much does that kind of care that he's getting now cost? 
It is it's not <laughs> cheap. <laughs> it's yeah, a lot. Yeah, I mean, we're talking, you know, uh, you know, home care aides in general are, are underpaid. They mm-hmm. really are. You know, maybe they're making $12 an hour. It is not by any means enough for a, a generic, a general home care aide who maybe is coming in to help your, your mom who needs a little help. Um, but somebody who comes in to help someone with a traumatic brain injury has to be trained uh, more than the average home care aide. They are high-tech aides. And um, they, in, in the past, before the law, they, you know, these folks were getting what I would consider a living wage, $17, $18 an hour. Um, some of the survivors actually need a nurse by their side uh, 24-7, and they were getting, you know, around... $40 an hour. And, you know, if you need 24-7 care, it, it really adds up. It is expensive. And so what are the options for folks if they can no longer rely on Michigan's auto insurance system to pay for this? Uh, I mean, what do, what do Vladdy's options look like? And are they the same as thousands of other people? And, and sort of what are people going through? Are, are, are there decisions that can be made or do they not really have a choice? Oh, boy, there is, you know, this is what I'm really worried about. Nur- nursing homes are pretty much it, right, for these folks. But they're they're also subject to the 45% cut. So they're taking somebody who uh, needs a huge amount of care and getting less payment for that person than anybody else. And they have understaffing already. And a lot of these nursing homes, I'm really, really afraid once people – like Vladdy, lose their care, they're going to say, we can't take you. We, there's no safety net yeah. if they do that. One of the things that helped me get my head around what happened, and the episode that we're dropping today is all about sort of the political story of no-fault reform. And uh, it's we <laughs> the beauty of the podcast is we can lay it out in, in greater detail than here. That's needed in this case, yes. Right, right. But when that 45% cut, we're going to – it's if you if you understand like Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement rates and how that works with hospitals, it might give you a closer idea of what's going on here. There's this fee schedule now that is like Medicare more or less plus two hundred percent for hospitals. Yeah, and and if you know anybody who works in hospital billing, you know that there's the cost of care and then there's the cost of care, partly because of the negotiation that happens between you know the payer and the payee. And that, to make a very long story short, that is part of what the reforms are enacting is Mm. a fee schedule and, and this, but, but this level of negotiation, like these care companies, this is not what they're geared to do. And, and it was an imposed fee schedule that, um, as the legislation was going through, uh, the House, the Senate, and the House. Um, the actual providers, the actual folks who know how much it costs to run their business, they were cut out of those, those negotiations. So this 45% cut, no, they did not agree to that because if they had been asked, they would have said, hey, guess what? That's going to drive us out of business. And the thing that also comes across in the political story, which we'll be telling today, is that a lot of a lot of folks involved who were involved in the negotiations like th- this this is a dis- a subject that has been discussed for 40 years and and the folks who were involved in drafting what we now have as no faults 
were aware and cost controls were were something that you know has been discussed over time it's just now it's coming to fruition in a way that is really not beneficial to the care companies let's go to the phones i want to welcome marty in yale michigan marty welcome to detroit today awesome thanks for having me um my position is i've talked to all my legislators to try to get clarification on this and when i talk to the insurance agents what they're saying is that the people that chose lesser PIP coverage, that they can then come after your liability for those medical expenses. So, you know, what would have been your first party claim, you know, they're coming after uh, third party for that for that first party uh, PIP coverage. And I feel that it's almost like churning because all the insurance agents want to sell you umbrellas now um, to, to increase that liability. But how can you even judge that, that liability that you're taking on with that reform? Mm. Marty, I appreciate this question and perspective. Uh, Tracy, uh, do you have an answer for Marty? Uh, no, he's, he's absolutely right. Um, there is risk here now. Um, you know, in, in the past, everybody had unlimited coverage, right, for um, personal injury. So <clears throat> there was no reason to sue the other party. Uh, now, let's say you're, you're carrying 50000 or even 250000 and you get hurt and you find out you don't have enough money to pay for your care, not even the hospital bills. Um, there might be um, a financial reason for you to sue someone else if you can find out do they have assets. So it, it, it definitely is something that uh, is causing folks with assets uh, to buy these umbrella policies. So, yeah. so there go their savings, right? If they right. had any savings, whoosh, um, they're gone. Yeah. But one of the things that we've been trying to get to the bottom of in, through the podcast is, you know, how much, how much of the coverage, because there's more discretion amongst insurers now, how much is really going to get paid out, even if you do go for the gold-plated PIP coverage, mm. you know, and <laughs> if, you, if you can't find a home care company, um, and, right, that and, unlimited is right. not going to do you any good. As in, spoiler alert, we're still working this out for episode three. So. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Um, um, so we, I only have about a minute left, but I did want to ask about uh, Michigan drivers who are receiving these $400 auto insurance refund checks uh, for each vehicle they own and that is uh, insured. Um, that's part of this new law as well. Uh, some people have said that they're not going to cash those checks in protest of what's happening to catastrophically injured people. Uh, Tracy, what happens to that money if people decide not to cash the checks? Um, I haven't been able to determine if it's going to go back to the Michigan Catastrophic Care Association or back to the actual, your insurance company. I mean, somebody's going to keep that money. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's not going to just like, and it will, it will likely go back to the insurance company. Um, so some people are feeling pretty bad about those checks. Um, and uh, there is one organization I'm aware of, the um, Brain Injury Association of Michigan, that is taking donations, and they will uh, put that money towards trying to help people who are losing care. All right. Well, the podcast is called Collision Course, the Konstantinov story from Michigan Radio. Uh, April Bear, host of Stateside on Michigan Radio, and Tracy Samilton, energy and transportation reporter for Michigan Radio. Really appreciate you both joining me today to talk about this. And, uh, you know, I, I believe you can uh, check this out pretty much anywhere podcasts are available. Is that right? That's right. We hope people will subscribe. It's uh, low commitment, only three episodes. Jake, <laughs> thanks for making time for the cousins. Yeah. Thanks again, everybody. Really appreciate that. Bye bye.
All right, that's all for Detroit today. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about the leaked draft U.S. Supreme Court opinion that would overturn Roe v. Wade if it turns out to be the court's official and final ruling. We'll hear from University of Michigan law professor Barb McQuaid, and we're going to take your calls and comments throughout the hour tomorrow. So please, again, same time, same place here on WDET. Detroit Today is produced by me and Sam Corey. Our program director is Joan Isabella. Technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is WDET-FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. Thanks so much for joining.